Pastor Steph, and in a couple of weeks, I get to go back to school. Uh, I am starting a sabbatical in October, but my classes that I'm going to be taking at Regent, taking a few of them, they start in September, so I'm going to be heading back to school uh, for the month of September while I'm uh, working here as well. But I, and I'm looking forward to that, but I remember a time when thinking of going back to school in September brought nothing but dread to my life, and I know there are many here today that are going back to school in September and probably feel that way. Now, if life was school, how would you grade your success? In school, we have measurements of how we're doing with our grades and we get letter grades although in some schools today everybody gets a participation ribbon and we all do the same no matter how you do but if you were to grade your life if life was school how would you say you're doing what letter grade would you give yourself and what criteria would you use to give yourself that letter grade would you base it on how your kids turned out? Would you base it on how many Girl Guide cookies you buy? Or maybe your recycling habits. Maybe when the announcement was made that we raised $1,500 for Chain of Love, you thought and gave yourself a pat, $1,439 of that was for me. Well, if it was, thank you for all those donations and you might need to see your doctor. How do you grade whether or not you are successful in life? Are you successful maybe because you joined the fight at the Vancouver Aquarium to make sure that they keep their promise to no longer keep beluga whales and dolphins in captivity? Maybe you have a cause like that that you live for. Or maybe you're like Beth. Beth is married. She's faithful to her husband. She has three kids, she volunteers at church, she's involved in the community, she supports the economy with the occasional shopping splurge. Beth, when her child protection policy came back, was completely clean. She doesn't pirate music off the internet, and she only complains about her pastor and her boss in the privacy of her own home to her husband. Is Beth a success? Is she living a successful life? Well, in order to make this evaluation, I want to introduce you this morning to somebody who was not like Beth at all. He lived 3,000 years ago. He was a guy. He was a king. And he had 88 children. So, very different from Beth. But I think that there are things we can learn from his life that will relate to Beth and will relate to our life as well. You may remember before I left for my three weeks of holidays that I did a message on King Hezekiah. What we're going to be doing for the next few weeks is looking at some different Old Testament kings. A lot of the kings that, if we're not familiar with the Bible, we probably haven't heard of. And we're going to look at the things that God did in their life and how God revealed himself through them so that we can see how God is continuing to reveal himself to us today. So at this point in the history of Israel in the Old Testament, 
Israel's wisest king had just died. That's Solomon, King David's son. Solomon was the one who brought Israel to its richest, to its largest and most powerful state that Israel has ever been in. During Solomon's reign, he built the magnificent temple for God. Solomon was the king that when God said he could ask for anything, he asked for wisdom, and God gave him wisdom. And despite some obvious flaws in Solomon's life that we know of, if we know his life, he, for the most part, led a very wise life and ruled in a wise way. But Solomon had died. The 40 years of peace and prosperity under King Solomon had now finished with Solomon's death. And his son, Rehoboam, succeeded him to the throne. And it's Rehoboam who we want to focus on this morning. 2 Chronicles 13 verse 7 says that Rehoboam was young and inexperienced when he became the king of Israel, which I find interesting because when you look at it, it says that he was 41 years old, young and inexperienced at 41, which just goes to show you that maturity has very little to do with chronological age, because there's another king that we're going to look at in a few weeks by the name of Josiah, who was eight when he became king, and by the age of 20, he had already shown more wisdom and more maturity than Rehoboam shows in his entire lifetime. So maturity and age are quite relative to one another. Rehoboam, 41, comes to the throne, and the Bible describes him as young and inexperienced. Rehoboam, he sets himself up as the next king of Israel, and one of the first duties that he has is there's another guy who comes along, and his name is Jeroboam. Now, this is a bit of a confusing part of the story. Uh, why does this guy have to have a name that rhymes with Rehoboam? But Rehoboam, with the R, is the king, and Jeroboam is a man who worked for King Solomon. He was the superintendent of all the laborers under Solomon's reign. He, because of some disagreements with Solomon, had fled, was in Egypt for a time, and now that Rehoboam comes to the throne, Jeroboam comes back with a number of the leaders of Israel and the, from the tribes of uh, Ephraim and Manasseh and has a request. Has a request. He comes back. He knows that this new king's on the throne and has a request for Rehoboam, and it, Rehoboam has to make a decision, the first one of his reign. So if you turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 10, this is what happens. Rehoboam went to Shechem, where all Israel had gathered to make him king. This is because Solomon had died. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he returned from Egypt. See, he had fled to Egypt to escape from King Solomon. The leaders of Israel summoned him and Jeroboam. And all of Israel went to speak with Rehoboam, this new 41-year-old king. Your father was a hard master, they said. Lighten the harsh labor demands and heavy taxes that your father imposed on us. And then we will be your loyal subjects. Rehoboam replied, 
which seems to be a fairly wise reply, where he says, come back in three days for an answer. Not going to answer right away. And so the people went away. Now, this was a reasonable request. Jeroboam, of all people, would have known the heavy taxes imposed upon the people by Solomon. He was the superintendent of all the laborers. He was the one that knew that with all the magnificent things that Solomon built and with the expansion of the kingdom did come a cost, particularly to all of the workers. And so he comes and he asks Rehoboam to lower the taxes, to ease the load, and he vows faithfulness to Rehoboam. Rehoboam asks for three days to think about this. He's new. He's going to seek some advice. And that's precisely what he does. He first off goes to his father's advisors. And he tells them what Jeroboam is requesting and he asks what they should do about it. Verse 6, then King Rehoboam discussed the matter with the older men who had counseled his father, Solomon. What is your advice? He asked. How should I answer these people? The older counselors replied, if you are good to these people and do your best to please them and give them a favorable answer, they will be your loyal subjects. But Rehoboam begins his reign with a major blunder. Even though he seeks out these advisors, and sometimes you wonder why people seek out advice when they've already got in their mind what they want to do, it says that even though he sought the advice of these elders, the people that worked for his father, Right after he listened to him, the next verse says, but Rehoboam rejected the advice of the older men. And instead, he went and found a bunch of his own buddies, and he asked them the same question. Rehoboam rejected the advice of the older men, and instead asked the opinion of the younger men who had grown up with him and were his, his advisors now. What is your advice, he asked them. How shall I answer these people who want me to lighten the burdens imposed by your father? The young men replied, this is what you should tell those complainers who want a lighter burden. Say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Yes, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips. I'll beat you with scorpions. Now, you must understand that this is one of those places in the Bible where the literal Bible is much rawer than our translators led on to. It's true in many places. We have a very censored Bible for sensitive ears, I guess. See, Rehoboam's friends did not encourage him to say, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist, which you see in a number of your translations. 
Waste is censorship by the translators. The old King Jimmy Bible is a little less censored because there it says, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. Now, I think you see where this is going. And you'll see the truth to how, just like today, people 3,000 years ago talked very much the same way. Rehoboam's friends are crudely encouraging him to compare his little finger with his father's sexual anatomy. See, throughout history and culture, that part of the man has always symbolized strength and virility and power. And not to mention that this is exactly the way arrogant, immature young men often talk. And so the original Hebrew just lets it all hang out, quite literally. So after three days, Jeroboam and the leaders of Israel returned to hear Rehoboam's decision. And when it becomes quiet, Rehoboam stands before everybody. The Bible says that with arrogance, he spoke harshly to the people and said, you thought my father was strong. You thought my father was powerful with his 700 wives and 300 concubines. Well, I'll show you strength. You see this little finger of mine? My little finger is thicker than what hung between my father's legs. My father laid a heavy burden on you. I'm going to make it even heavier. My father beat you with whips. I'll beat you with scorpions. That's what the people heard. Now you can imagine if you were Jeroboam, if you were the people that brought this, what seemed to be a fairly reasonable request to this new king, and that's what you heard, you can imagine what your response would be. It's exactly the response we read in the very next verse when it says, so the king paid no attention to the people, and then we hear, down with the dynasty of David. We have no interest in the son of Jesse. Back to your homes, O Israel. Look out for your own house, David. Caused rebellion. Civil war. Israel split from Judah, and they never were ever reunited since. It was the split of the kingdom over this young, arrogant Rehoboam who refused to listen to the requests of the people. And then Rehoboam immediately tries to enforce his big pinky finger power by sending Adarom, who was in charge of the labor force, to restore order. See, everything had become chaos. And so Rehoboam sends this guy in and says, okay, we need to restore order here. Maybe we can pick up the pieces and establish things. But it says that the people of Israel just stoned him to death. That's what happens so often with the messengers of kings. They get the brunt of the people's fury. Realizing how out of control things had gotten, Rehoboam quickly jumps into his chariot, flees to Jerusalem, and the ten northern tribes split forever and are now ruled by Jeroboam. Rehoboam, Judah, and Benjamin, the two tribes that decide to stay true to David's house, to Rehoboam, 
with the other ten leaving. And in the midst of all of this political turmoil, we read something quite interesting. Even though all of this happened because of the sin of Jeroboam's rebellion, because of the sin of Rehoboam's arrogance, and because of the sin of Solomon's harsh treatment, we still read that this turn of events was the will of God. Somehow, even in all the mess of our sinfulness, our bad decisions, God's will is never thwarted. And in all this human mess, God's will was still accomplished. Even amidst all of this, God's all-ruling sovereignty is never thwarted. In fact, it even fulfilled what God told Jeroboam earlier through a prophet. God's plan can never be defeated. So humiliated and surprised by the kingdom he had just divided, Rehoboam tries to reunite the kingdom. Once again, Rehoboam, trying to use his little thick finger power, selects an army of 180,000 troops. Actually, says select troops. And plans to attack Israel and somehow enforce a reunion of the kingdom. He will make his authority known. And while the battle plans are still being mapped out, there's a prophet by the name of Shemaiah who arrives on the scene and speaks to Rehoboam. This is what the Lord says to you, Rehoboam. Do not fight against your relatives. Go back home for what is happening is my doing. And you can imagine what young, arrogant, puffed up, refusing to listen to the advice of the elders, Rehoboam is going to do. Well, you'll be surprised. Because here we read of Rehoboam's first wise decision. He listens to the prophet. It says, he obeyed the message of the Lord and did not fight against Jeroboam. And then goes on to begin to prove himself as a fairly good king. He reestablishes the kingdom he now rules over. He sets up different people with different skill sets to lead different areas of the kingdom. He strengthens and fortifies many of the towns to defend Judah. He stocks the food supplies. He stocks the army. He allows people to freely worship the one true God. He is so adamant about this that even many of the priests and the Levites from the northern tribe that has split away flee to Judah so that they can begin to worship the true God too because Jeroboam has taken the northern tribes into complete paganism. And so many of the priests from those tribes come down to Judah and join the southern group with Rehoboam. Rehoboam also marries 18 times which, by the way, is 682 less wives than his father Solomon had. Uh, Rehoboam chooses his successor, 
which is wise. Many times when that doesn't happen and the king's reign ends, it's chaos. And he makes sure that the rest of his other 28 sons are looked after and given responsibility. And then we read, in doing all of this, Rehoboam acts wisely. Despite his initial blunder, things were now going well for Rehoboam, and the southern tribes and the land reflected it. During these three years, the people faithfully followed in the footsteps of David and Solomon, and now Rehoboam. So he seems to have kind of redeemed himself from his initial blunder. And yet, things don't stay this way. Thanks again to Rehoboam's foolishness and arrogance, right when things become comfortable, the people forget about God. When Rehoboam was firmly established and strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord, and all of Israel followed him into sin. In fact, if you flip over to 1 Kings, which tells the same story, but gives a different light to the story in 1 Kings, uh, we read there just how bad things got under Rehoboam. We read there that during Rehoboam's reign, the people of Judah did what was evil in the Lord's sight, provoking his anger with their sin. For it was even worse than that of their ancestors. They also built for themselves pagan shrines and set up sacred pillars and asherah poles, which was a sort of a fertility cult. Uh, Asherah poles on every high hill and under every green tree. And what goes with these fertility cults is what the next verse says. There were even male and female shrine prostitutes throughout the land. And the people imitated the detestable practices of the pagan nations around them that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of Israel. So that also goes on during Rehoboam's reign. So God raises up a king by the name of Shishak, a pharaoh actually, from Egypt to come and attack Jerusalem with a countless army because of what Rehoboam is doing. And once again, the prophet Shemaiah speaks for God, comes into Rehoboam's presence and says to him, this is what the Lord says, you have abandoned me. And because you have done that, Rehoboam, I am abandoning you to Shishak of Egypt. And what does Rehoboam and the leaders do? Once again, he acts wisely. Then the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is right in doing this to us. And because their repentance pleased God, he allowed Egypt to discipline Rehoboam in the south, but not to destroy them. When the Lord saw their change of heart, he gave this message to Shemaiah. Since the people have humbled themselves, I will not completely destroy them and will soon give them some relief. I will not use Shishak to pour out my anger on Jerusalem, but they will be his subjects. So they will know the difference between serving me and serving earthly rulers. Because Rehoboam humbled himself, the Lord's anger was turned away, and he did not destroy him completely. There was still some good things in the land of Judah. Is Rehoboam beginning to confuse you yet? 
I mean, what's up with this guy? How is he to be remembered? Was he a good king or was he a bad king? He foolishly disregarded the advice of the elders. He showed obvious arrogance at the beginning of his reign. He foolishly led the people into sin and into prostitution and into serving pagan foreign gods when he became established and strong. And yet he wisely built up his kingdom to prosper. He listened to the word of God. When he was warned about attacking Israel, he listened to the word of God and repented for leading the people into sin. And God relented from sending Shishak to utterly destroy them. So how are we to assess Rehoboam's life? Was he a success or a failure? Well, it doesn't really matter how you rate him. See, it only matters in the books of one person. And that is, it matters how God saw him. And at the end of his story, it's almost like the way the writer writes this story is building us up to this. By going back and forth and keeping the suspense there until we get to the end of the story. And then at the end, we read, Rehoboam was an evil king, or he did not seek the Lord, with all his heart. Now, I have to admit, when I first read that, that surprised me. An evil king, stupid maybe, foolish, not always making the best decision, but evil. What about all of his listening? What about his repenting? What about the times that he honestly humbled himself before God? Why is he considered evil? Well, there's a key in that phrase that brings us to the point. And that is the words, with all his heart. You see, Rehoboam did seek God. But when you read the story in light of the conclusion at the end of the story, you'll notice that Rehoboam always sought the Lord when he was in trouble. When he was established, when he became powerful, when things seemed good, peaceful, he forgot about God. And then when he got into trouble again, he sought God. In many ways, he only came to God when it was beneficial for him. Other than that, God was far from his thoughts. He did not seek God with all his heart. What we learn from Rehoboam's life is that a pragmatic faith is not really faith. See, there are many people that simply want God for what God can do for him. They simply want God as a servant to be there for them and to help them out for all of their needs. It's possible to follow God for selfish reasons. Serving God with the primary hope that if you serve God, he will expand your business. 
If you serve God, he will grow your church. If you serve God, he will help you sell your house. If you serve God, he will get you a mansion in heaven. But if this becomes the primary motive and the reason that we serve God, we really are dabbling with pagan magic rather than Christian faith. We see this when our prayer life is more all about asking God for things and rarely about thanking him for things. Give me this, do this, do that, give me that. God is there to serve me when I get in trouble. God is there when I need a boost of confidence. God is there when I need a little success in my life. Isn't that what God's for? But love or as the text says, seeking God with all your heart isn't about using God. Love is simply about devotion. It's not a love relationship if you're in a marriage or you have a friendship or with your parents. If all a relationship is, is give me, give me, give me, do this for me, do that for me, and do this for me, and then when you're established and when you're well and you don't need the other person you never speak to them or don't talk to them and then as soon as you need things again you come to them some of us unfortunately have wayward children like that the only time they ever phone us or talk to us is when they need stuff from us and when we either don't give it to them or do give it to them once they have it they don't talk to us anymore that's not love Rehoboam had that kind of relationship with God and the problem with a pragmatic faith also is that it falls apart when the trouble times come. Because God doesn't always protect the dying baby from death. God doesn't always stop the house from burning in the wildfire. God doesn't always fix up the consequences of our sin. In fact, in most cases, with many of these things, he doesn't clean up our life for us. And the lack of success in a business endeavor that you are in isn't an indication that you are unfaithful. Just as success in a business endeavor doesn't mean that you're faithful. See, we used to be sold this lie in the church that cleanliness is next to godliness. Do you remember that? lie that was told well that's no longer kind of a, a cliched lie that's being told nowadays the lie in the church that's being spilled everywhere is success is next to godliness we've adopted our capitalistic ways of thinking without even realizing it so much into our understanding of scripture that success means godliness. If someone's successful, they're obviously walking with God. If someone's not successful, they must have a shady relationship with God. The way that we equate success and godliness how much re reveals how much our theology has been shaped by even this health and wealth prosperity gospel, even when we deny it. We are so affected by it, particularly in our Western culture. We're more shaped by capitalism than we are the cross, which is a symbol of suffering. 
We want pragmatics. What does this do for me? I remember sometimes uh, when I've preached even sermons on the Trinity and who God is and love and how it all relates, some people have come up to me after and go, so what's the point? What does that do for me? I'm like, what about just love? What about just delighting in the person of God? Does it always have to have a utilitarian purpose? Is it always a bait and switch? Is that always what it's about? Because a pragmatic faith is not really faith. It used to be that marriages were arranged for purely pragmatic reasons. Economic situations or people of the same class. No love was involved. Parents would get together and they would just arrange things and they would put people together for purely pragmatic reasons. Often what came with that is a lot of illicit relationships on the side and mistresses and all of that because the relationship was not based on love. When our faith in God is merely pragmatic, it's no wonder we continue to have pagan gods and mistresses on the side. Because if the only reason we're following God is for pragmatism, for what it can do for you, it's not based on love. So our assessment of the success of Beth and Jody and Tara and Bob and Randy and Daniel or whoever else we want to assess in life doesn't really matter. In fact, the Bible even warns us about judging one another's success because all we can do is look at the externals. But God can see the heart where it matters. And the heart is where love is. That's why the Apostle Paul himself even wrote in 1 Corinthians, As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or any human authority. In fact, which I love, he says, I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light. He will reveal our private motives. And then God will give each one whatever praise is his due. God knows our private motives. God knows if the motive is love or not. Paul's words, I don't even trust my own judgment on myself, reminds us also to not take ourselves too seriously. Because every single one of us is self-deceived to some point. One of our greatest vices is self-deception. And it's most prevalent in those people who are convinced they're not self-deceived. Only God knows the truth. The 17th century preacher John Bunyan spent over a decade of his life in prison. For preaching the gospel in England. He begged God. He pleaded with God to set him free. Imprisonment then was terrible. He said the hardest thing for his imprisonment was particularly his family. He had a number of kids. One kid in his family that had a number of disabilities. And his wife was left 
to look after all these children herself. He pleaded with God many times for release. And writing in his autobiography of the toll this was taking on his life and wondering where God was in all of this and wondering why God didn't intervene and then beginning to go down that that negative path of maybe I'm not faithful enough. Maybe I need to pray more. Maybe I need to pray harder. Maybe I need to do all these things. Maybe that's why God's not releasing me. Eventually, in the midst of all of this, he realized the conclusion that he needed to come to. And he wrote these words. He says, was God going to comfort me? Would he be there at my death? As I asked these questions, I then realized, wait a minute, I was bound, but God was free. And my duty was to stand by his word, whether he saves me or not. And so I decided at that point that I was going on with Christ, whether he comforted me or not. I decided that I would leap off the ladder, even blindfolded into eternity, swing, sink or swim, come heaven or come hell. Lord Jesus, if you catch me, do. But if not, I will stand with you anyway. Those are words oozing with love. Paul said words like that. Paul echoed words of saying, I, I, if it was even possible because of my love for God and my love for my people, I would be willing to forfeit my salvation for them. It gets to a point where it's no longer about getting this, getting that, getting this. It's love. Love is what motivates. And that's the difference in our relationships too. Why is it that some people, even when their spouse begins to become chronically sick and chronically ill, and their spouse no longer can do anything for them, they are still so 100% devoted to them, where others just walk away. You can't, sir, can't do anything for me anymore. You're useless to me. The reason for the one is because of love. In sickness and in health, whatever. I love you. This is what love looks like. It's no bait and switch. It's no, I'll do this for God if he does this for me. It's no magical charm God for personal gain. It's no Rehoboam pragmatic faith. Every time I'm in trouble, I'll go to God. Because a pragmatic faith is not really faith. Faith is about love. And love is about commitment. No matter what. I've got no guarantees. Whether I'll live or die, or in the world's eyes be a success or not a success, or be healed or not healed, I've got no guarantee if my children will turn out right or not turn out right. I've got no guarantees, but you know what? I am for going on with Jesus. 
I'm not bargaining with him. Lord, this is my list of things you need to fulfill. If they're not fulfilled by this age, then I'm abandoning you and following someone else. It's no, it's love. I will follow you no matter what. That's why Abraham in the Old Testament is the father of the faithful. Because Abraham shows us the ultimate picture of loving faith in the fact that he was willing to even sacrifice his only son for God. Which he never had to do because of who God is and didn't demand that. But it is the very thing that God did for us. Because of his love for us, because love goes both ways, he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, for each and every one of us. And even there, it wasn't a bait and switch. He gave it freely, knowing that even this great sacrifice was going to be rejected by many, as well as received by some. He gave his son for love. And as the Bible says in 2 Chronicles, the story where all these kings come from, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. His eyes range his eyes are looking for those who are fully committed to him. Not those who have perfect lives. Not those who live sinless. Not those that have it all together. He's looking for lovers. He's looking for people whose heart beats with a love for God. Unlike Rehoboam, who, yeah, at times ran after God, but did not have a heart fully committed to God. God's looking for the hearts who are fully committed to him. Because a pragmatic faith is not really faith. It's not love. As we all know, true love is very often ridiculously not pragmatic. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we pour our hearts before you. We ask for forgiveness for the times that we simply see you as a tool that we can use for our own end. And Lord, we pray that we will have a deeper love and grasp of who you are. We want to be people who love. God, our Father, you alone can enable us to accept and obey your commandments and do your will. Increase our faith. Help us to trust you when the skies are dark. To accept 
when we don't understand. To be quite sure that all things are ultimately in your hands. Increase our hope. Give us the hope which has seen things at their worst, but which refuses to despair. A hope that is able to fail and yet try again. A hope which cannot disappoint and does not abandon you. Increase our love. Help us to love others as you love them. To love you as you first loved us. To love loyalty to our Lord above all things. Help us so to love you that your commandments will never be a weariness and a burden to us, but that that will be a joy for us to obey you. And that in obedience to you, we may find perfect freedom in doing your will. Grant us the strength to fight the good fight, to run the straight race, and to keep the faith no matter what. Hear our prayers for your love's sake. Amen.